0: Welcome to the Jabadoo Education Podcast, episode 31.
1: So in other words, we're so driven by eyesight and vision that a simple switch of perception undoes our metaphors and how we think about education, and how we think about the world. And that's sort of how I get to this, what is sound curriculum? It's trying to think about the ways that sounds and ideas of them can influence not only what we do literally impact us in the material ways we're thinking of, but also how they can change how we understand the world to have it be more fluid.
0: You're listening to the Jabadoo Education Podcast. I'm your host, John Ruths, and I'm going to introduce you to some of the leading professionals in the fields of education, psychology, and leadership to bring you the most relevant and up-to-date tips, tricks, and tools for you to use in your classroom. Welcome to Jabbadoo. Hey, what's going on, teachers and educators? And man, do I have just a uh, a mind-blowing episode today. Uh, I'm sitting down with Dr. Walter Gershon, and um, he just he he oozes passion, he oozes conviction, and it's just super captivating. Uh, and I just I think his brain is just on a completely another level from (laughs) everyone else uh he just just the the way that he speaks and um some of the theoretical constructs that he explains today i'm sitting there just like this is just a completely new way of thinking first of all how did you get there and two how did your brain like (laughs) wrap around this concept and but he does it in in a very uh clear way that i was able to follow and uh Hopefully, uh, you know, as, as you're listening to this, you, you're sitting there, you just kind of have that like jaw on the floor moment that I was as I was uh, listening to him speak. But uh, we go through a new uh, new field of study that he's kind of um, one of the front runners in. And it's this notion of sound curriculum. Uh, and it's essentially how uh, sound is. Is or is not used in education, and kind of examining why that is. Um, and really, it's it's more of a paradigm shift than anything. Kind of shifting away from a visually centered classroom and exploring how an a uh, audio centered classroom might look. Um, and what are some things that we can take away from that? Because uh, as as he says in this episode, you know, learning does not stop in the classroom. Learning happens outside the classroom. Uh, So what are some of the constructs that happen outside the classroom that we can bring back into the classroom kind of with uh, with this filter of what's the sound that's happening, but wrapping it all up in a way that looks through equity and fairness and decency and respect so it's it's a super cool conversation I'm so glad that I had this conversation with him and I hope you guys get some value out of it too but before we dive into the episode just wanted to remind you that a couple of things uh, one if you would like to help support this podcast I would just be so thrilled uh, you can do that in two ways first is we've got some Jity original t-shirts. Uh, if you want to go check those out, those are linked up in the show notes, uh, which can be found at jabbadoo.com slash show 31. Uh, but we just threw on some really cool quotes that are meaningful for teachers. Uh, put them on a t-shirt and you can now show off your teacher pride wherever you go. Uh, so check those out. Or you could also uh, go to any of the books that are mentioned in any of our episodes if they uh, or sounding like a book that you might want to purchase, if you use the affiliate link in our show notes, uh, that'll just give a kickback to us and help support all the production costs that go into making this podcast. Number two is we would love to have you join our Facebook group. Uh, you can check that out, facebook.com slash groups slash Or if you just want to go to a Facebook, or if you just want to go to the show notes page, again, show. 31 slash show31. Uh, there's a link for the Facebook group there on the show notes. And last but not least, if you would like to sign up for our email newsletter, uh, right now this is just a reminder that <laughs> the episodes are releasing, so you get a nice little reminder there sent to your email. But in the future, uh, we hope to be doing some more stuff, so uh, it will also keep you updated on everything that's happening in the world of Jabbadoo. So uh, if you would like to sign up for that, there's a spot there on, you guessed it, the show notes page. (laughs) So check that out, jabadoo.com slash show 31. All right, let's get into my fantastic, mind-blowing conversation with Dr. Walter Gershon. All right, on today's episode of the Jabadoo Education Podcast, I am sitting down with Walter Gershon, Associate Professor of Critical Foundations of Education in the Department of Language and Literacy and Sociocultural Education at the University of Rowan in the state of New Jersey in the country of the United States, (laughs) which is a play on what we were talking about before I hit the record button there. But uh, yeah, Dr. Gershon, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you?
1: Fine. Thank you. Please call me Walter. It's just Walter.
0: Walter, I appreciate that. Yeah, um, so we uh, we got linked up um, a couple couple months ago, but uh, it's been back and forth a little bit, uh, and now here we are in the middle of uh, snowmageddon outside for me. So if we uh, if we cut off a, a little bit uh, here and there, hopefully it doesn't uh, become too choppy. But. That would be the reason uh, for the listener <laughs> if this becomes uh kind of choppy but anyway i digress um yes sound studies is is kind of uh your forte and, and what we uh, decided we were going to chat about today even though you uh, uh as well as uh, a bunch of different professors that i've had on just have multiple different avenues that you're working in um so we we might touch on a bunch of different things but uh this this idea of sound curriculum uh and sound studies in education is fascinating for me and and for you because we're both musicians so you know there's there's definitely a tie in there but let's go back i always like to start every episode from the beginning so who was walter uh the student what was your uh you know just experience in education as a as a student uh and then what led you down the path that you are now
1: um so I, as a student, I grew up in and around the Washington DC area. So I was sort of born in that area and then ended up going to school uh, in and around DC. I spent maybe three years of my young life uh, in a private school in the area and the rest has been public schooling for me. the uh i went to local elementary schools and high schools and those kind of things um but as i like to tell people local high schools around washington dc are some of the best high schools in the world and so one of the questions that i have as an educator um, even though school is not my necessarily favorite thing so the idea that i'm a professor of education would probably (laughs) surprise a lot of my high school teachers let alone uh people who had me younger Um, But the uh, the idea that um, that schooling is so excellent in some places because the area decides what uh, how schools function and the degree to which they have access to certain things, etc, rather than systems. Um, So a question I continually ask myself is. Why are these things not available for everyone all the time if it's mm-hmm. indeed a public mm-hmm. system and to some degree equitable and the answer is, of course, it's not and that's why we're here et cetera. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, uh, how I got into education um, was I just kind of fell into it. it, it and uh, to be clear, I lived a life where I had the privilege of just falling into an occupation, which is another yeah, yeah. set of understandings that implies that I was able to go to college. I was able to somehow afford and put those things together. I was able to graduate. I was able to graduate not as an educator. So my undergraduate degree is in East Asian studies um, and then somehow still be able to become a teacher um, over time. And so I, I first taught as an alternative uh, K-12 teacher in uh, self sort of self-contained, but mixed age, mixed level high school classroom in Portland, Oregon, where I wrote and designed the entire curriculum, which is one end of the spectrum and certainly far from where we are now. Mm-hmm. And then uh, spent some time in rural Japan, doing some teaching there and English as a second language, and then came back and ended up in Southern California, where I was an elementary school teacher for some years. And it was there that i was having conversations with people about the kinds of changes we might be able to make in schools and for children and families and communities Uh, and people kept saying like we're not going to listen to you you don't have a phd kind of thing and i thought Mm. well maybe but i put it to the side and literally fell in i had a conversation with someone once who said it might be a good idea and i just happened to apply and get in i really just applied to one school took my gre's break right before i applied and got in so the idea that we have dispositions as educators and you're the kind of person who had to like line your animals up as a young person and teach uh-huh. them or any of these other kind of stories we tell ourselves as educators are important to remember that although they're often true. A lot of us end up in really caring about children and about places and ideas through a variety of pathways. And all of them are important as long as we end up in a place where we're treating children with respect and dignity and hoping that knowledge gets passed along in a way that's comfortable as much as possible along, you know, as well. Yeah. That kind of stuff.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: Wow. Yeah. I mean, what a what a great uh, just overview. And I'm curious, uh, your your experience as a student in the DC area and then your experience yeah. as a teacher in the Southern California area, uh, mm-hmm. you know, two, two of the, um, more populated, obviously areas of our country. Do you see any parallels sure. between the two, uh, systems, uh, both as a student and as an educator?
1: Yes. I mean, to, to begin with all of education is possible in the United States because of the way we think about what education means and how it should function. So as one sort of uh, surface level, but actually kind of deep set of understandings at the same time, we really believe in educational winners and losers. So we really care about, for example, a success failure binary in schools. Right. Mm-hmm. And we really strive hard to make sure that everyone can be successful. But the reality is, as long as we have a success-failure binary, we need to have people fail in order that others can succeed. Otherwise, their success Mm. doesn't mean anything, and their failure is not something they can grow out of, right? So given that set of framings, um, it's not surprising that some areas succeed and some don't. Um, And so one of the ways, and, and, and by saying an area doesn't succeed, I don't mean that they aren't successful. And this is part of what I'm getting at. Um, is that I, I've i not met children and families who are unsuccessful. I've not met communities that did not care about their children, right? right. I mean, I'm second generation and third generation. My grandparents certainly cared very much about this. Yeah. And the first uh, generation and new arrivals I meet are the same no matter where I am. So with that set of understandings in uh, the way, I think the biggest contrast between the two is that areas in um, in around DC, so I was in Montgomery County schools, but it doesn't matter if you're in Fairfax County or any of the other spaces, are places where you have um, the most set of access and opportunities uh, for education, uh, maybe, it, certainly in the United States, a parallel to other areas um, for public schooling, which is private schools, a different matter yes. and um, and and important. And and in that way, in North America, in the world as well. And the students that I was with um, in basically in Nevada, outside of Los Angeles, um, but still in that in within L.A. County to some degree or definitely in L.A. County. Um, are first generation and new arrivals to the United States, uh, whose home language is a different language than the language they are insisted upon learning at school, and who live in a community where the only place you might need to learn English or speak it is in school. Otherwise, it's kind of not worthwhile to have, right? Like the second I left the community I was working with, if I didn't have at least a slight knowledge of how Spanish functions, spoken and written uh, and listening, I would not only not have been able to communicate with people's parents and my Spanish is horrible. But to be clear, I know that the deficit is on my end, not on the community end. So, in other words, I think the difference is much more how we perceive communities and the way in which people are treated and the ways in which we pretend things are equal when they're not accessible, than it is much more anything else. Right? Like, Hmm. kids did stupid things that kids do. Right? (laughs) Like, you know, and (laughs) I did. Not going to be. Yeah, that's that's every school, right? Right, and I did stupid things that I did as a kid. So, in other words, the difference was primarily on how we were perceived and the kinds of education we received in larger systemic ways than it was anything to do with actual individuals or or communities or families with whom I worked. Um, And that's, that's probably how I think about it.
0: Yeah. Uh, I just I'm not sure if it's your uh, your silky baritone voice or not, but I'm just I've, I'm invested in you. <laughs> I just want to hear more of you talking. Well, uh, so let's this. I mean, that's that's just fantastic. I love all of your uh, input and insight into, um, you know, some of these disparities that have been brought to light uh, more recently uh, in the last couple, you know, in the last year or so here uh, amidst the <laughs> the epidemic. Um but let's let's go into now your your field of study, which I am super fascinated about. Like I, th- I think I said earlier, as as a music teacher, this idea of sound curriculum, uh, and I read a little bit of you wrote a book, uh, helped to author a book all about sound curriculum, uh, and how sound plays into our education system and classroom experience and all that. Uh, and the one thing that um, kind of stuck out to me, I, I wrote it down because uh, it. It was just so cool. Uh, sounds are felt as much as they are aurally experienced, uh, which I'm not sure if that plays into um, how, like, if you're listening to a song, you, you feel it in your whole body. At least for me, like you can get so invested into a music. It's not just a, an aural experience, but you can actually uh mm-hmm you know feel that in in your bones as they say so yeah. uh where where did this interest come from in, in sound curriculum for you where where did that start and uh you know cuz it's it's a newer emerging field of study field of study so uh where did that start for you
1: yeah so uh- I'll answer that question and then sort of flip it backwards to answer like what it is and, and how I conceptualize it so we can have a a, a talk about those sort of things that Perfect. are of interest. Um, so I was um, basically aurally like uh, aware of things from my ears as opposed to oral. I'm saying oral, yes. but I have a... <clears throat> Slight winter sound in my a- face. You. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so I've always been orally located and attentive in a particular way that is common among a lot of people who end up um, paying attention to music in their lives at some point. Um, whether they become musicians or they simply play it or they love to listen, like I'm, I'm less interested in the professionalization of it than I am knowing the things that turn people on and get them excited and they pay attention to it they notice um and so i was one of those kids right so i started piano lessons very young at like three something like Mm -hmm. that um and the family story is that I sat down the piano touched the keys a few times and started crying immediately because I couldn't make it make the sounds that everyone oh. else was making at a piano and I didn't understand at three like it would require time and effort I just watched many adults walk up to pianos uh we had one in our house so I watched my, my dad play sometimes and I watch other people play and I thought how come this does not work today, apparently? <laughs> very three-year-old logic and all the early childhood <laughs> yes. educators will relate to some version of this they've seen probably even today um so so that's it so i was uh, i was playing and studying music um not formally as some people do so i, I don't have a degree in music um but uh, as you can see probably from the instruments arranged around me yeah then, uh, <laughs> got a couple I, bongos and djembes. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so um so i was a afro-caribbean i'm an afro-caribbean percussionist um, and a saxophonist and i was a saxophonist first so um i've been doing that now for a long time actually as i think about it this is my 40th year playing saxophone, something ridiculous like that. And I've been playing percussion since my early twenties. So it's coming on, you know, 25 plus years of that Mm -hmm. 30 years. Um, and so I was a professional musician before I was ever a camp counselor or anything like that. I think, I think that Mm -hmm. like the way that my, my life worked. Um, so, uh, it's not surprising that I'm interested in the way that sounds function and how they operate. Um, in terms of the the question that you asked in the beginning um, uh, about what uh, the quote that you read. Um, the thing about that quote, I think that's important is that I think sounds touch us, not just haptically, like if you turn something loud, you can feel it in your chest or why right. we like to listen to car, likes things in the car really loud, <laughs> right? Get the rear your mirror of,
0: shaking. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. That kind of feeling or the way that um, music therapists have these really cool mats that have speakers embedded in them. So you can play music and have people feel them. I mean it that way, but I also mean the way that things resonate I um, mean, I'll get to this momentarily, but. The way things resonate in a person for real uh that are often thought of to be intellectual emotional virtual rather mm-hmm. than embodied material immediate okay. and or lasting so if you hear a sound that's kind of wonderful, like for me, one of my, probably my favorite sound on the earth is the sound of babies and little kids laughing. Like that sound for me uh, is, like I could just hours and hours for that. I saw someone went around the the Facebooks and all the rest of the medias. Um, I'm old so Facebook is where I saw it first. And so <laughs> or, Sorry. or Instagram or whatever. Like that's just what hit me first. That's still where um, I am too. <laughs> yeah, uh, which is not to say I don't have those accounts. It's just to say that's where I saw it. Uh, about a person who studies baby's laughter for a living that was going around the past couple of weeks. And I just keep thinking, man, did I miss it? Like, I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know studying baby's laughter was a gig. I would yeah. have really been on that a lot, <laughs> a lot earlier. Um, but in the but same to that, way, that, to that end, my, yeah.
0: my wife is a uh, my wife is a pediatric audiologist. So she oh, also deals with with this all I'm the saying. time, too. I know. Uh, but her one of her first classes in her uh, in her AUD program was uh, the professor took everybody's car keys. And they had to close their eyes and they had to, and that professor held up a car key and jingled it. And everybody, I think it was nine, nine or 10 students in the classroom all identified their personal car keys just by the jingle because it's so ingrained in us. So, um, right.
1: so there's that sense of things, but there's also like the way someone's words sick with you or the way a sound that upsets you or makes you pleased is there. So what I mean is, I mean, it. In a literal and a metaphorical sense. And then that's sort of how I operate with this question of sound and curriculum and other things. Um, Very briefly on curriculum, we often, I know you've had other people in here who are curriculum studies people. And in fact, you're kind of figuring out that we're all interconnected uh, in some ways. Of course. Um, So the fields that I'm in, um, which are subfields of education that are not important to the conversation, other than to say that these fields allow me to conceptualize what I think curriculum is in a particular way, that is echoing probably what people said before and also um, uh, different than what we mean when I say curriculum. So when we talk about curriculum, it's usually the formal curriculum, the knowledge students are intended to learn in school, right? Textbooks, teacher's guides, assessments, standards, objectives, all that. So when I go to teach a class on curriculum, as I am now, most of the students are just mainly dreading it. They can't figure out why they'd spend a semester thinking about what curriculum is or how it functions. They already know how to do it. How much more curriculum development and planning do you need as a graduate student? You know That kind of thought. Yeah. Um, but curriculum, for the ways in which I think about it uh, and have been taught to think about it through these fields, um, through hundreds of years of traditions, really, is the idea that if you learn things, you learn them not just in school. So any interaction can become an, a knowledge or educational interaction.
0: Of course, yeah.
1: Um, in the same way, lifelong learning is sort of silly because not lifelong. Always are, learning, right? Is death. So like you know, like there's just there's <laughs> yeah. right. So. So like these kind of things that we say regularly that when you think about it, you think like, really, that's sort of an odd thing to do. Um, So in the same way that we learn things, not uh, like most of the most important lessons I've learned in life, I didn't learn in school. And that part of that is that I'm old. And part of that, (laughs) right? Like there's a point at which in your life, schooling has taken a, a big chunk of your life. So the idea that you can imagine you might learn something outside of school is a strange conceptualization, especially Mm -hmm. for younger people who spend, you know, their time in schools. But you will live twice as long, the average life expectancy in the United States is longer than the amount of time you would need even for an advanced degree. So by time alone, you'll learn more outside of school. And then there are the life lessons like, I don't think I learned how to love well in school, Mm -hmm. I don't think I learned how to, like, take care of others so well there. I don't think I learned some questions about inquiry and investigation, even though I had some really phenomenal teachers, right? So if things that happen that are knowledge interactions or educational interactions happen in and outside of school, then we should be able to apply some of the constructs and understandings to those things in other places. So we need things that are fluid inside and outside of school. So it's not just the formal curriculum or the hidden curriculum, which are like the knowledges that one is in um, the sociocultural information that's often implied, right? Like when you go to an elementary school and everyone's in two lines, a gender, a boy line and a girl line, even though title nine says you can't do that, mm-hmm. but everyone puts people in lines mainly because it's easier to go to the bathroom. But in fact, there are lots of like, you could have a blob of kids and say, go to the bathroom and they'd sort that out. They got to go. <laughs> so Right? And how, but weird it's not, it's is it not as
0: organized.
1: <laughs> right, right. So it's more about how we conceptualize it than it mm-hmm. is those. Yes, yeah, of course. So, the, so when I talk about curriculum, I mean, not just the formal curriculum, but also the hidden curriculum, the enacted curriculum, how we do things, the delivered curriculum, the ideas as they're taught, as opposed to how they're in a book. And that mess of things for me becomes educational ways of being and knowing and doing which I falsely in this book put together as one big word because as a person, I can't separate what is like, what was the moment in I, that I said that, that I did it, said it, or was it right? Like how we are, who we are impacts what we know. Right. So like you can't, you can't avoid yourself as much as we'd all like to sometimes. Yeah. Right. So if you're always yourself and how you is your isness, how you be, how you are as a person, Is central to your experience, then who, then how you are, and who you are matters as much as the kinds of things you're trying to know and how you know those things, and then how you do those things are as important. And then, so in an educational interaction, you automatically are the person you are, knowing the things you know and doing the things you do. They're an inseparable set of things. We we falsely split to have these ideas, right? And so yeah, so. To get so I know this seems like I've left it, but we're, we're now I, back. To I sound. I I can feel it. It's circling yeah. back around. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because if we take things from a sound metaphor rather than an ocular metaphor, so most of the things in our life that we have in from, um, in, in Western traditions, so in in Eurocentric traditions of which the global north is a large part, um, what we end up with is these understandings that. Are ocular in the blink of an eye. Well, that's important. How are you going to frame that idea? Okay, cool. But framing means that I'm looking forward. And I can see just to the periphery of my understandings. Mm -hmm. So we think framing is important because we care about those kind of understandings. But if we think about what sounds do, please show me, or like, what does a frame sound like? How does a frame smell? What right? So think of all the things that we're missing, not just in terms of perception, but conceptualization. So in other words, we're so driven by eyesight and vision that a simple switch of perception undoes our metaphors and how we think about education and mm. how we think about the world. Which means, like if it only takes moving from one sense to another to undo most of what we say. <laughs> Perhaps we should start thinking with different metaphors. And that's sort of how I get to this, what is sound curriculum? It's trying to think about the ways that sounds and ideas of them can influence not only what we do literally impact us in the material ways we're thinking of, but also how they can change how we understand the world to have it be more fluid towards Mm. ways of attention. Um, And specifically, I'm also interested very much in questions of listening. So what does it mean if the center of being a teacher isn't seeing what happens, but hearing what happens or listening to someone else? Like, how does that change things? What does it mean if we're caring more about how we're attuned to something than the correctness of it? Mm. Right. And so I think it also gives me some more wiggle room to pay attention to how young people think and how they are. Um, because they're incredibly complex, and, and we got to do something to keep up, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, like but it's really hard to describe those things. I'm sorry, please.
0: No, that's all right. I mean, just the because I did read that in in part of that the one of the chapters that our, our school system is very uh, visually focused, right? Reading and writing are both visual things, and and we teach with a, a board in front of us, and that's that's visual, and all right. the learning is almost expected to come through. The visual sense, um, right. but like you said, you know, our, our vision is is one, not not one dimensional, but we can only focus in one direction, I guess. But sound is is all around us. Smell is all around us. There's no direction to those things, uh, so it's it's an interesting uh, shift to the paradigm of you know how we absorb that information.
1: No, that's, that's right. And I think a lot, like, to be clear, I'm not suggesting that sounds are better than sight. This isn't uh, a but I want to make that clear because a lot of times, and that's the flip immediately. Um, What I'm saying is that we pay so little attention to it, that attending to it changes what we can do. Um, And uh, I, so for example, I'm fairly sure that the boundaries, a lot of boundaries that are educational are, are sonic rather than physicals. Bar- barriers. What so, what I mean is, um, so there's a chapter in the book about this, and I've written about this in some other places. But for example, uh, in a classroom, if you want to have a private conversation with someone as an educator or a friend, you what gotta do go you to do the do, hallway. <laughs> well, you gotta go the, or you just lean in and say, "I'm sorry, baby. What was that?" right? Or your friend when you don't want the teacher to say it, but you want to have a private conversation, we'll kind of do one of these where you're facing forward and you don't have your lips move or whatever game (laughs) that the the kids play, or the adult, you know, kids text, whatever that whatever the thing is for modes of communication. Um, And, and so that's where it ends. Like if you walk down the hall in, in a school, you can hear you don't have to be in the rooms to hear the lesson. Okay, Okay. And then the building, like the the example I use from the book, that's sort of a, a, a surface level example, but schools set the time for the blocks in which they exist. Those mm-hmm. bells, quote unquote, they ring all the time and you can hear them down the block. So you I know people who grew up around schools who never set their watches because they knew when they had to be somewhere, because it'd be a <laughs> warning bell <laughs> to run across the street to school, right? Um and, and then think of all the ways that sounds teach us things or what our experiences say. So I'll give you an example from my life um, at Kent State. Uh, so the building where the education department is has an old school vent in the bottom. And the vent is sort of a heat dispersal. Uh, it's a combustion driven vent. So okay. it, it basically occasionally just makes a huge bang sound and lets a bunch of <laughs> air out and so the first time it happened it was sort of transitioning to winter it was my first time in ohio i just moved up from los angeles and i'd grown up in washington you know in the dc area and lived in in and around cities so as i was sitting there there was a huge bang and i just hit the deck and we're just i'm talking with colleagues in sort of an underhang by a parking lot and then i i waited for a minute and I, I got back up to see what was happening and my friends were kind of laughing at me and i said i'm <laughs> i'm sorry you know like I heard that sound, and I immediately interpreted anything that loud, that close, as a possible gunshot, and hit the ground. And I was apologizing to my friends, and they were like, "What were for?" And I'm like, "Well, oh, it surprised me so much, I didn't grab you too, right?" So my inclination was, I wasn't like, "I'm sorry, I just hit the deck. I didn't think to protect you as well." And they're thinking like, "Why are you diving on the ground in the middle of a parking lot?" <laughs> and so that's what I mean by sound being informational. And and these are not ideas from me. There are lots of people whose ideas I'm I'm incorporating to, to get that. Um, and that's important to note, but these are the kinds of ways that we regularly have now sound become knowledge to us. Um, and we may not figure it out as well. So not just words and ideas, but also experiences and, and sounds.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. And like, you know, as, as a music teacher, that, that's very natural to me, but, uh, the the one thing that um you know I guess I, I'm I'm as I as I was trying to prepare for our conversation I was having difficulty trying to figure out what we were actually going to talk about in this because yeah. um it is it's just such a uh, a unique um, angle in which to uh, view our schooling days right um and it, it's kind of hard to relate it to anything else I think is is where I'm I'm trying to have uh, is where I'm yeah. coming up with some difficulties you
1: know. Um, yeah, no, 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 no worries. So I'll give you an example of the kinds of things that I I think can become advantageous, right? And one of the things that's ironic to me is that sound—the idea that sounds are new, right? So pe- I, for a while, I couldn't put sound files into um, into articles. Like a picture was okay; they could link to a video, but people really didn't know what to do with the sound file. Gotcha. And I was saying things like uh so you have a media rich file that's huge but you can't just take this little audio clip of a kid talking so you can hear a person speak in their own voice and they said no so the idea to me that we could do like video in public places and post them but somehow hadn't progressed to the point where we could do radio that way even though we've been doing radio and recording audio for a hundred (laughs) years still like right so that's that's about our perception so one of the kinds of curriculum that's, um, that w- we speak to sometimes in curriculum studies is the null curriculum, like that's which noticeable for its absence. Okay. And so, so for example, um, in, in another book I wrote, I gave one of the examples I often give to students and I still do even though sometimes they read this with me. Um, and, and that is, um, I asked them to please name as quickly as they can, all the famous women scientists they could possibly name. Hmm. If I take away Goodall, Jane Goodall, and Marie Curie, and I start a stopwatch and I go ready, go, and Whew. it often drags for a while. And I go, okay, okay, okay. How about men? And I like I say, ready, and I'm going to take away Newton and Einstein, right? Usually under seven seconds to get at least ten or fifteen, right? And then I say, okay. Cool. So now all the famous women of color, indigenous women, uh, non-Western women in science, ready, go. That's the null curriculum. I'm talking to people who are masters and doctoral students sometimes, and we can't do it as a collective whole. So that's the thing about null curriculum. And in a way, sound curriculum is a form of null curriculum. Interesting. And, And so... And it's not that we don't do it or use it. It's that it's missing. So I'll give you some of the kinds of things that I find advantageous in thinking about everyday classrooms and also thinking about how education functions. So I'll Mm. sort of use the tool back and forth.
0: You're doing my job for me. I love this.
1: (laughs) So my pleasure. So um, (laughs) when we think about, um, so let's think about something like resonance. So resonance is a literal set of physical understandings in western physics it has to do with the ways in which two different pitches are associated each with each other literally numerically the number of times it runs across your ear yep. um in terms number of vibrations hertz, per minute right? yeah, per second it, yeah per, per minute per second depending on how you're thinking about it right um and and so that's what a resonance is something has to resonate um, so the way we think about these things is like, if you're play, if you're a person who's a musician and you're playing an instrument and that instrument makes something in your house rattle, or if you're in a practice room and you play something and the snare drum rolls or whatever, yep. that that's one set of understanding. Or if you play a song in your house and one of the glasses rings, sort of a classic kind of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, so, so that's what we have in terms of a, what a resonance is and resonance is often, um, put together with understandings of dissonance and consonance. So consonant is something that resonates with it. And that's, is something that doesn't, there are lots of other explanations that are mathematical and physical. We don't need to get into, but that's Mm -hmm. part of the definition. Um, So what I generally do is I try and take these ideas that are literal in sound, maybe in Mm -hmm. physics of sound or in experiences of sound. um, And I'm pretty fluid with that. So, the part of me that is um, like in real life, sometimes that's difficult not to have all these kind of lines between ideas that are really important that you have lines between. It's not that I don't see them so much or hear them so much as I tend to skip across them. And so when I was a student, sort of getting back to that, that's actually some of the ways I got in trouble was I would insist on things and figuring them out when it wasn't what the assignment was or wasn't what the perception of those things were um and i think that certainly informs how i am now um and so what i mean by resonance in this case is literally anything that resonates with you as a person so i kind of start with this idea that everything vibrates or it oscillates right and i i mean that literally and i mean it metaphorically so literally (laughs) The reason my table in front of me is solid is because there's so many particles moving so fast, not because they're still, right? So things are solid because of movement. Things are liquid because of movement. So we have that kind of physical states of of movement and sets of understanding and oscillation. And then there's the personal one. Like how I feel right now is not how I felt like three minutes ago. And what I'm thinking right now is not what I was thinking even moments ago as I was trying to set this up. And occasionally, as I'm thinking, my thoughts run away from me and I have to sort of <laughs> stall and pull them back together, right? To try and get back to what I was trying to say. Very, very so well aware that are, I do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I know I do all the time. i can I could even point out to you the number of times I've done that so far here, probably, <laughs> right? Um, and and so this idea of that things are in and out of phase with themselves is something that we experience often as. Human animals, Mm -hmm. and it's also something we experience in the things that are knowledge base, right? So, using that as a set of understandings, if we remove the need for something to be constant and dissonant, which I'll come back to momentarily, then anything literally anything we can name that's a thing can resonate with any other thing. Sure. So, today is a snow day, and so it's a great day for this example doesn't matter how old people are if you're in a classroom and snow begins to fall <laughs> someone will talk about it and if the kids are either um, well it doesn't really matter I've seen students of all ages including adults like in the middle, stop, right like stop and like want to look out the window and sometimes young kids will get out of their seats and sometimes high school kids will get out of their seats and sometimes adults will get out of their seats because they <laughs> want to see the snow um, and so what we do as educators is we say, the boundaries of our understanding are that which I had in mind and that the degree to which you can do that thing. Doesn't matter what it okay. is, right? So part of it is if you behave differently, than someone has in mind, you're behaving poorly. You're off task. You're gotcha. not doing your job, right? Consonant, Right. <laughs> Partially the consonants. And we'll get to that in a second. But if you run to the window, right? the question if the question is not why are they interrupting the lesson running the window but why are they running the window what resonates with you out there then it's the whole different conversation why are you at the window oh, it's snowing. okay so what is it about snow what did you see what did, right it can be about an imaginary it can be about a moment it honors people where they live etc and so if we start conceptualizing understandings in that way to your point it starts changing what we do and then in terms of what's consonant and dissonant we actually start wanting things that are less standardized and less consonant because like a musical extension of chord, if you want to use that metaphor or any other one, the more dissonance you have in a structure, the greater chances you have that someone will resonate with that thing. So if you only have one way to do things, you're going to have a certain kind of consonance, but it might be a forced consonance and it provides less opportunities if you have multiple ways of doing things within whatever it is you're doing, and any of them one might be honored with those things or something else, and it encourages that set of other understandings, you're gonna have a better chance of having someone resonate with that thing, even if it's built on something that might not seem to go together. And so these are the kinds of ways that I'm thinking about how sounds function, how they function for me as a researcher in education, and the kinds of things that they do for me as a scholar. Right, so. Um, like I go to classrooms and I put a bunch of microphones up and have kids talk and work and have them interview each other and then take all that information in and listen to it and then bring it back to them and we think about what these things mean together. So it provides me a, an actual tool. It provides me a pedagogical tool, but it also allows me a set of language to get to ways of more, comp- from, for me, sort of comp- necessarily complicated things that doesn't let them relate in a singular. There's no frame. I can't say this is in or out. I can point a point of direction. I can talk about the quality of it. I can say this isn't what I had in mind. I can say that the thing that you did is not the thing I meant to do. And I can see how this resonates with you, even if I don't use that language. I can say, I can see how you got there, but it's not the assignment, right? right? And then as a professor of education, what it means is that if a student brings me an assignment, that's not the assignment I had on the syllabus, even though we reviewed it. I'm still going to grade the assignment that they gave me. They put time and effort into it. They thought about it. That's what they wanted to give me. And until the last moment when they realized it wasn't what they had in mind, it was right. Like it was only yeah. not okay to the moment when it when my perception hits it. So these are the okay. kinds of flexibilities that I think might be possible, um, and why I think it's a value. Um, if nothing else, as a set of tools to push back at how we regularly conceptualize things to give us another set of understandings where we might think about the world otherwise and help us better understand like the really amazing things that young people do when they learn.
0: Yeah. Uh, just so many great analogies in there uh, between the sound and uh, just learning. Um, and but yeah, going going back to that that I think the concept that sound, I'm I'm trying to create like a visualiz- visualization here, like sound again, going back to yeah, <laughs> a visualization, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Um, but sound sound is circular. Sound is around us, and uh, it the this idea of resonance. And I loved how you said. Um, you know, if there's only one way of doing things in your classroom, you're only going to resonate with a certain number of students in that way. Whereas right. you open up different strategies, different uh, avenues, different things that students are able to do, all of a sudden you have the opportunity to resonate then with more and more students in your classroom. And ultimately you get to reach students in different ways. Uh, and that it all it all ties back in a good analogy to uh, the sound uh, that's all around us. I mean, it, I love it.
1: And as, as we're thinking about what consonance is, the other thing that happens is if you insist on a consonance, then you are talking about how that's framed, and your job becomes primarily watching the boundaries of that. Hmm. That's not to say that there aren't things that need to happen in a specific way. Of course, I don't I don't mean this in in a kind of <laughs> this is not like, anarchy. <laughs> well, you know, it, like it, it could be, but I I you know. I'm, Anarchy is a different conversation. And I'm not, (laughs) um, but I think it is worth noting that anarchists believe in self organization rather than outside organization. So the understandings that we have about like these sort of ways that we do things are fairly interesting when you talk to, to that level of conversation. Um, but in terms of the consonants of things, if you insist on a consonance and you insist on having it work in a particular way, then you're, you're stuck with those boundaries. And, and we need to have those boundaries at times. So, you know, like, for example, I, there is no physical or verbal violence in a classroom where I teach. And the people who decide that are the human beings who feel like they've been impacted by that. That's not my decision. Mm. My decision is the set of parameters. My decision is not how that is perceived. Um so I do think limits are important and you can't have ethics without limits and there are all these kind of things that are very important so I don't wish to say that this is without boundaries or without perce- like you know what I mean like these these conversations can get away from what's possible um at the same time we don't want to be too limiting with it to your point about the sets of understandings right and what is consonant or what can be consonant is sometimes really important right? Like, so do you want to figure out, like, are we agreed on this or not? How are we going to do this? Um, I, I, yeah, no, please go ahead.
0: It's just, it, I'm in my head, I'm, I'm tying in a couple different things. Uh, one, I just recently, it might've been, uh, last week's episode where, um, we were chatting about, uh, Kagan structures. If you're, if you're familiar of, of that, um, training, but, uh, you start the year off with a, uh, an an agreement between you and your students that you create together, uh, of different rules of your classroom. And you set the year up from the beginning with consonants in mind. Uh, and I just, I, I had to tie that parallel in right there.
1: Yeah, no, it's really, I'm I'm smiling, uh, because that's a very kind of old school thing to do, right? Like, what are you going to do? We're going to put the class rules on, we're going to decide them together. We're going to sign it. Right which is in fact what i i used to do when i taught fourth and fifth grades was part of the constant part of history was the the gig and people were thinking all the time about ways to have historical events be more meaningful right and the constitution now and then uh is not an insignificant document for us and so i we had a class constitution was what I came, so I don't so you know. Some kid—it's yeah. At some point, some kid came up with it and I just was like, cool, sure, whatever. Like, not in a negative way, but in a whatever you want to call them, I'm down with kind of way. And so we decided the rules and in usual teacher fashion, I front loaded them with the only rule I care about, which is no physical or verbal violence. And then after that, like that's the only rule i insisted on all other rules anyone else could come up with and basically we're variants of that but whatever and <laughs> and and i don't mean that negatively i mean like that's the, that's the idea
0: that's the root yeah
1: that's the core right i mean the the, the but whatever isn't dismissing what the children did it's meant to say like it's whatever they do would be just fine um, because they talk about it and agree upon it, and then, okay, right? Like, if they were like, every day you give us a million dollars, I would have been like, okay, make sure I'm a millionaire up front, and I'm happy to, right? <laughs> so, the, like, we negotiate these kind of understandings. And then everyone signed it, and I said, I'll put it anywhere in the room. And the first year I did it, a bunch of students were like, you you won't put it on the ceiling. And I was like, well, why not? And they're like, seriously? I was like, yeah. So, um, fire codes, you know, we had to move them, I guess. But... <laughs> Uh, I put it on the ceiling with thumbtacks and some teachers came by and eventually it made it way to the the principal's desk and some people were asking me you know why the rules were on the ceiling and I said I I don't know if you notice how many times during a day a young person puts their head back and just stares at the ceiling. (laughs) Right, I mean. Not so much the, the kind of things that, I, that people used to do when I was a kid, like throwing pencils and stuff in the ceiling, but more like I've, I've caught kids in the middle of talking when they're just bored of me droning on, like counting the number of tiles or the number of <laughs> dots in one of the tiles or whatever. So when they lean back, what's wrong with their eyes going across the rules of the classroom? I guarantee you they're going to see it more there than on the walls. And so that's the that's kind it, of thing yeah. I'm talking about. Like, what are the ways we can use our understanding to set parameters for care and justice in ways that help us help children and help help us understand them and help them understand us? Yeah,
0: and still do it all under the sound umbrella. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, right. Um, um, I, I think the only thing I would say to add to that idea is that I, I think it's important when we work with ideas to, to take them to remember what they mean literally And not hold on to them too literally and at the same time pay attention to when it matters like when does it matter that it's a metaphor or not right so if an idea that resonates over time can be amplified or dampened then it's political not in a republican and democrat kind of way but political in the sense that it's a choice of this over that And all knowledge is a choice of this over that. There's no knowledge anyone ever learned that's not political, that doesn't show the society and culture from which it's from in some way and express those understandings, right? So what you end up with is the resonances that are most meaningful to the individuals and groups that are parts of those understandings. And so what that means for us as we start to think about what is a resonance and how it works is that it also can be amplified or dampened. So the reason I know about something, and maybe other people don't, is not because it was crushed, but because it was dampened. And other things are intentionally amplified. Mm -hmm. And so if we start thinking about how we understand ideas as being amplified or dampened, even in a conversation right now that's a a contemporary conversation about a number of things, not least of which is health in a pandemic, Mm -hmm. the structure and nature of a society, and all these other kinds of things we're thinking about then this provides us another metaphor. Oh, yeah, no, the reason you don't know that is because that was, or the reason you heard that so well is because it's been amplified everywhere into what are they called? Oh, echo chambers, right? Like, so all of a sudden our sets of understandings about what's echoed and not and these kind of things. And if you notice right now, we're talking about resonances a lot for the past couple, three years, actually. And so it's interesting to watch how sound language becomes part of things and then what sound language does that's negative. Right. So there are whole different kinds of worlds that can be excused through sound ideas that that can be problematic. So, so I I guess what I'm saying is it's for me fascinating, and I spend a lot of time spending it in different ways, but I want to be cautious with it as well. Right. Like it's not like, oh, sounds the answer. Right. That's (laughs) that's really super. Or I recorded it. It must be real. Right. Like these are problems across the board. So,
0: yeah. But I mean, it's still the, I, I love the, um, you know, obviously, the the study that you're doing and the work that you're doing is not for the analogy, but the analogy itself is uh, really helpful for me. That that notion of resonance and and consonance and what's uh, vibing, <laughs> if you would, right. uh, with your students, um, and just using uh, sound as a uh, as an analogy for uh, a very visually focused classroom uh, is just is it's a nice little, um, like I said, just a, a new way to view uh, you know, the paradigm, which is education. So, um, I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking we're probably about time to wrap up here, but this has just been, I, my mind is, is going all sorts of different directions. Um, and I, I just want to thank you so much. I mean, you, you're just, you're fantastic to listen to. Is there anything you wanted to touch on
1: before, uh, we wrap up here? There, there are a couple little things I wanted to touch on. Yes, please. Um, one is this idea that um, if you're interested in this work or these kinds of things are of interest, uh, I keep pages at both ResearchGate and Academia.edu, which are places set up for scholars to have research posted around firewalls. Um, so I do that. Uh, and you can just look my name, Walter, you shown showing up on either one and I pop up in both places. Yeah, we'll um, have for a place those...
0: in the show notes as well then.
1: Oh, thank you. And then um, anyone who wishes to come think about these and other sorts of ideas as they relate to questions of justice and care for young people, uh, I coordinate our master's program in urban education and uh, community studies at Rowan. And so find me via email. We'd love to see you. uh, And we'd love to have you at Rowan. And I think I'm just appreciative of anyone who listened to this whole thing. Thank you so much for sticking (laughs) through. (laughs) I appreciate it.
0: No, that's awesome. And, and like I said, any anything that, uh, as always, anything that we've talked about that uh, has a link that we can link to, we will make sure that that is in the show notes. So um, yeah, this has been just mind blowing <laughs> for me. Uh, let's move then over to uh, our exit ticket questions. These are the same four questions that I end every interview Perfect. with. And the first one is, do you have a book recommendation for teachers to go read? It can be anything, just a book that you think every teacher should have on their bookshelf
1: i've i have two books and they're both free and available online and neither of them are new i would say anna julia cooper's 1892 a voice from the south by a black woman from the south and also carter g woodson's 1933 miseducation of the negro or maybe two of the most important education books we've ever had there are plenty of places to do it and there are projects that reproduce them that you can support if you like um, but I think they're very important books and often overlooked in graduate schools and schools of education in general. Though they're coming around. Yeah,
0: I, I believe I've I've heard of that first one, but not the second one. So, um, yeah, yeah, we'll we'll link those up. Uh, question two is: uh, What resource would you suggest uh, teachers go check out?
1: Oh, uh, I think one of the. Well, I would say that I'll just go with two again, two other resources that I think are really great um, over time for teachers to think about how to teach with greater justice and care for all communities. Um, and I don't, that's not my way of talking about race with not talking about race. I meant actually all communities uh, are uh, Bell Hook's Teaching to Transgress and Dr. Bettina Love's uh, newest book, uh, We Want to Do More Than Survive. Both of those are really wonderful books with a lot of history and understanding.
0: Yeah, and that second one has popped up, I think, four or five times on this podcast already. Yeah. Um, yep. shout, yeah out Bettina to, Love.
1: shout out to shout out to Betina Love.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, fantastic uh resources there as well. Um yeah, thank you. Uh question three then is uh what piece of advice would you like to give teachers, particularly teachers who are just starting out their careers?
1: I would say that um listening to kids and paying attention to the people around you in as many ways as possible is the most important thing you can do. Everyone's going to make a lot of mistakes. Mm-hmm. You're going to make a lot of in- mistakes. Those are inevitable, like mistakes and problems. And that's, that's inevitable. But what's not inevitable is that you'll pay attention so that other people feel heard and dignified and cared for. And if you're doing that, the other parts will come. And and that that matters because you can't begin to know or do anything until you feel like you could be yourself and be respected. Hmm. So I would say that's probably the most important thing. Awesome.
0: Um, Yeah. Thank you. And then the last one is we we will link everything in the show notes, like I said, but uh, if anybody wants to reach out to you personally uh, on social media or email, uh, where would be the best place to send them?
1: Yeah. I have a Twitter feed uh, that I don't use very often, but it's, (laughs) it's, it's Um, but if you wanted to, to have a conversation or talk, the best way to find me is via email, uh, which is Kershawn um, at, uh, at Rowan.edu. And I'd be happy to, uh, to have conversations about this or anything else that's related to questions of care and justice and kids and sound or not sound. The other part's <laughs> actually really important.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I appreciate that. Yeah. yeah. No, I've I've really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. And uh, you know, I think I said it either before we started recording or after, I don't remember, but um transitioning this podcast a little bit into just more of this uh theoretical concepts and just posing questions that maybe we don't answer. Um, I think there's been a lot of just brain gears turning, at least on my end and hopefully for the listeners as well. Uh so I appreciate you uh taking the time to to sit down. With me tonight and talk all about everything that we talked about i mean it's been wonderful
1: my pleasure and it's been a pleasure to be here thank you so much
0: and there you have it yeah obviously a big thank you to uh dr walter Gershon and also for dr uh bonnie waslick for connecting us a uh, big shout out to her she was on javadoo uh show 12 uh so if you want to check her episode out fantastic Conversation all about uh, evaluating the intersectionality, as she calls it, of uh, gender, race, and sexuality. Uh, Great conversation with her. So check that out. JabbaDoo.com slash show 12. But wow. Sound studies. Sound curriculum. um, Just a really cool, unique, and new perspective on uh, some of these different elements that we can analyze and uh, just take into account when we... Look at our, our sound or look at our curriculum and look at our classroom and how is it structured and where can we incorporate the element of sound? And at least maybe not incorporate, but at least think about um, what is the effect of having or not having that sound, right? Um, it's just a, a fascinating conversation. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is, is just this reframing uh, and and thinking about sound as the primary uh, sensory form as opposed to vision in our classrooms, and and what that does, you know, as as a music teacher, maybe that might be a little easier for me to do, um, but I think we are just so tied uh, to the sense of vision, right? As as Walter was saying, the uh, you know all of our metaphors that we use in our language, uh, they're all kind of tied to vision, you know. Hey, look over here. Even though I maybe just want your attention, I'm not necessarily talking about you. Maybe it is about looking, but sometimes it might just be I need your attention. So instead of that, it might be, "Hey, listen up," which we do, you know. But um, maybe those aren't great. <laughs> maybe those aren't great examples. But just this idea of shifting away from our vision, because um, you know, vision is how when when we're up there in front of the classroom and, and we're talking with kids, vision is the main source that we use for. Knowing if our students are on track, like we look around the classroom, right? But what would that be if we just really focused in on listening around the classroom? What is what's what are our students doing that shows us that they're on track based on what we hear? Um, or if you know, uh, what would it be like if our uh, our principals or our uh, curriculum supervisors or whoever it is that comes in and observes us again? Observing is you know rooted in vision. Uh, what would it be like if they? had their eyes closed the whole time for 40 minutes or whatever it is and all they had all they could do to uh observe us would be to listen what would that be like um just some really cool like i said reframing of some concepts that uh we might not think about and you know hopefully that's that's what you got out of this podcast is it's just giving you something to think about that you've never thought about before um and there's definitely some value in that so uh, I hope you did get some value out of this conversation. Uh, but before I set you loose, I just wanted, re- wanted to remind you of a couple things. Um, one, go check out the show notes. Everything that we talked about on this episode, you can find on our show notes page, com slash show31. You will also find links to sign up for our email newsletter. Uh, if you want to stay up to date on all of the episodes that are coming out, it gives you a short little preview as to what those episodes are about. Uh, but in the future, uh, hopefully it'll keep you up to date on everything that's happening in the world of Jabadoo as we expand uh, past this podcast. So I uh, would love for you to link up with us through uh, your email. Uh, you could also check out our Facebook group, uh, either jabadoo.com or excuse me, either facebook.com slash groups slash or you guessed it, there's a link there on our show notes page. And last but not least, if you want to support this podcast uh, in any means, um, you can do that two ways. One is we've got some Jabadoo original teacher tees, which are just some great uh, quotes that we've thrown on a t-shirt. A great way for you to show off your teacher pride, as I like to say. Um, Or if you hear a book that you are interested in purchasing, if you go down to the bottom of each of the show notes that you heard the book on, uh, we've got links to, we've got some affiliate links that if you purchase through that link, it'll just give us a little kickback. So those would be two ways for you to support us and all the production costs that go into uh, making these episodes for you. So, like I said, as always, I hope you got some value out of this. I hope you're enjoying these episodes. But until next time, go teach. Thank you so much for listening to the Jabbadoo Education Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more evidence-based strategies for improving your educational career, go ahead and click that subscribe button so you can get the next episode as soon as it is released. If you think this information was beneficial and you think more teachers should hear it, the greatest compliment you can give us is to share this episode with a colleague, either through a text message, email, or social media. And last but not least, if you think more teachers need to hear more of what we are talking about, please go leave us a five-star rating and review on your platform of choice, and that will simply let the algorithm know that you are finding value in this content, and it will help boost our show to the top of the list when people search for education shows. Thank you, I appreciate you, and I will see you on the next episode of the Jabadu Education Podcast.